If he had to choose one object to take with him to a desert island, Bill Holm would have probably brought a piano. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we start off with our final interview with writer Bill Holm before he passed away. Bill muses about islands from Madagascar to Molokai and the eccentric nature of what an island has to offer. If the sea wants to eat you, it will. And if the tide decides to rise a little higher than usual and wipe you away, it will. There's something nice about that. Then our friends Tonkut and Lali Aran from Istanbul will field your calls as we explore their city off the beaten track. They'll share ideas for getting to know Istanbul like it's nearly 15 million residents know it. Its architecture, commerce, people, and ongoing history offer an endless array of options for the curious visitor. Whatever is happening in the country, Istanbul is the showcase for it. From daydreaming about islands to wandering the fascinating back streets of Istanbul, stay with us for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're taking a closer look at the megacity of Istanbul by getting off the beaten path to find ways that the locals enjoy their city with its teeming, historic, and engaging neighborhoods. With its labyrinthine markets, with its churning harbor, and those thriving mosques, there's a magic moment waiting around every corner. Istanbul offers no shortage of travel adventures, but the trick is you got to know how to find them. But we're starting today with an interview with writer, poet, and storyteller Bill Holm a delightfully burly, Minnesota-based American Viking. Sadly, Bill passed away just a few weeks after we recorded our interviews with him. We had just finished our conversation about his summer home in Iceland when we turned to a more esoteric topic that he raises in his book of essays called Eccentric Islands. For travelers, islands have a certain mystique, and they can actually be more than a place to go. They can be a, a state of mind. I'm joined by Bill Holm, who's written a book called Eccentric Islands, and he's got a unique take on islands. Bill, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Now, tell me about your book. What's, what makes islands special for human culture? Well, they're a way of looking, a sort of microcosm, I suppose, of looking at the whole through its parts, of reducing what you're looking at so that you can see it more clearly. To see the world in a grain of sand, eternity in an hour, uh, the old idea from William Blake, that somehow an island gives you a way of looking at reality that allows you to penetrate more deeply into its heart because you're less distracted by its size. Now, as a resident of North America, I have a tough time understanding that, but you're a resident of Iceland, and that makes a lot of sense to you. Is this something that is easier to get your brain around when you live on an island like Iceland? The British would probably have a fair time understanding it. The Japanese certainly do. Mm -hmm. The Greeks, who are, of course, an island culture. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you live in Iceland, you think of it as a continent. Hmm. The, the name means island in Old Norse, home. And so I say, call me island, imitating Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. You know, that's my name. Home. So it just island. Means, yeah, that's my name. Call me island. But no man is an island. You are an island. And I get to the I get to that one later. You know, you can use these quotes. And I talk about five islands that I love in the book. Iceland, of course, but also Madagascar, that huge continent sized almost island off the coast of Africa. Uh what is it about Madagascar that appeals to you? Almost everything. It's if, if Whatever you see in Madagascar, you can't see anywhere else. Such it's an as? extraordinary place. Well, the, the animals, the insects, the lizards, the vegetation, and even the culture. I mean, it's not a, technically an African country. It's a Polynesian country off the coast of Africa. Huh. How's that? Like Iceland, it was not settled by human beings until about 1,500 years ago. And then the Polynesians arrived probably from Borneo and Malaysia, in outrigger canoes across the Indian Ocean hmm. to settle Madagascar. That's interesting. Now, you also have Molokai in your book. Why would you choose, of all the Hawaiian islands, Molokai? Because it's the only one that's still Hawaiian. <laughs> Molokai has no stoplights. It has no re fancy resorts. It's uh, the poorest and the most isolated of the island, and it's haunted, in a way, by its leper colony. And I grew up, oddly, I'm a Lutheran, and, you know, it's suspector of Catholics, you know, in Minneota, Belgians mm. particularly, who grew up thinking that a Belgian priest, Father Damien, was one of the great heroes of the human race in the 19th century. 
and one of the bravest, most decent characters in the history of Christianity. And he was almost the only Christian who, under the circumstances, actually behaved like a Christian. So I've always wanted to tell Father Damien's story, and I went to Molokai, not to Maui, not, you know, to uh, the big resorts. And I wanted to, not even to go to the leper colony, but to look at that bleak and isolated and that haunted place where the lepers were incarcerated in the 19th century. It's a wonderful place, wonderful. Hmm. It's one of the most moving places on the planet. So that's my Catholic essay. And you write of a piano as an island. Oh, yes. When you're playing the piano, you're on an island all by yourself. You have disappeared from humanity. There's also a physical piano island in China there. It was a kidney-shaped island in the middle of a fountain in a a western hotel that had a black grand piano. And I was so desperate to play a piano in China that I would go in and talk them into playing cocktail music and, uh, you know, light classics just to have a chance. But you you spend a good part of every year in Iceland on a remote part of the coast in a little cottage, and in your cottage you have a piano. Of course I do. Of course you do. Of course. Why of course? You don't travel without a piano. I don't live <laughs> any place without a piano. Do civilized people live without pianos? Even if you don't play one, you should own one. And the better the piano you own, the better. Have it sitting in your house so that if someone comes into your house who has a need for a Bach fugue or a little Chopin mazurka, You've got a piano for them. I mean, it would be being a bad host not to provide a piano and not an electric piano, a real piano. It can be a modest one, an upright, and tune it every year and just have it there. You'll find that the mental life of humanity will profit from this considerably. Do I sound a little evangelical about this? I know what you mean. I, I play the piano, and if I'm in a home without a piano, there's something missing. Even if I'm not going to play it. It's yeah, just there's something nice to, missing in the house. It, it's nice to know if you need to, you can go to that keyboard and make some music. Absolutely. Reading your chapter on that, you're an expert on the mechanism of a piano, talking about clavichords as, yep. as if you've built one. I, well, I have one, a homemade clavichord, an old Zuckerman, and an old homemade uh, harpsichord. Now, know, do you Zuckerman. play your clavichord in your cottage in Iceland? I had it in Iceland once, then I moved it back. This was years ago when I was teaching there. But I really want to move it back to Because a clavichord, there's something perfect, intimate about perfect, a clavichord. Yeah. It's that connection with your finger and the string. You can do a vibrato, yep. complete control. Yep. Oh, God, I love that, Babel. Uh, but, oh. and, and how nice to open the window to the sea and sit there at the clavichord in that light in the middle of the night playing Carl Philip Emanuel Bach's passionate fantasies full of Babel. So there's uh, an island. You can yeah. go to your piano and be on an island. We've been in Molokai, Madagascar. Iceland. What's another island? Well, I once had a bad gallbladder attack, and I had a bad wisdom tooth infected in the side of my jaw. And like a complete idiot, I allowed myself to have a heart attack in China. And when you're in moments of great pain, like all men, women will tell you this, I'm a baby. I mean, I don't resist. I just, "Ah!" I weaken in the pace of pain. And somehow you're islanded. You're separated from humanity. You become your pain. You don't become a human being. Hi, I'm not Bill Holm. I'm the gallbladder speaking up. Nice to meet you. Hi, I'm not Bill Holm. I'm Bill Holm's impacted wisdom tooth pressing into the side of his jaw. Can I beat you up in the alley? Uh, you lose your humanity somehow through that. And of what value is that? I don't know what value, but it's, uh, it happens to human beings. And I think we have to understand the psychology of that process, that there's a good islanding. And then there's an islanding that's a sort of devil's island or Alcatraz or uh, the islands in the Arctic where, you know, one perished. That there are islands, well, the eminent old English teacher D.H. Lawrence has a wonderful story, the man who loved islands that warns you of loving islands too much. Very interesting story. If you love an island, is it because there's a sort of something special about community and treating time or a lack of competition or what is consistent about island cultures? You don't have borders. Your border is the sea. 
uh, I mean, when you're in France, your border is Germany. And even in Minnesota, you know, your border is Manitoba. Sometimes forget that Manitoba is not Minnesota, but it is. But it's a border. You can drive someplace. In Iceland, the only place you can drive is off the cliff and into the Gulf Stream. And you wrote that if you moved Iceland to the interior of a continent, in 10 years it would be uninhabited. Yeah. Because the sea holds the people in. If it was in the middle of the continent, everything would just dribble away. It would lose its uniqueness. Yep. Exactly right. Of course, it would also lose the real reason for its existence because Icelanders make their living off the sea and always have, as sailors and as shippers and as boaters and as fishermen. And they've eaten off the sea. But so once you take the sea away, you've taken their diet. You've taken their livelihood and probably their wisdom. I always feel a lot smarter when I'm in Seattle or when I'm in the Pacific Northwest where my great-grandparents died in Bellingham because you look out at Bellingham Bay and the water in the Pacific and there's no border. Once you put one foot in the water out of Bellingham, you're taking the first step toward Japan. You said you feel a lot smarter as opposed yeah, to Yeah, I what? do. I don't know. It's irrational. When you're I, where? As opposed next to, to the water. I next see. to the sea. As opposed to when you're in your home in Minnesota. Yeah, in the middle of the continent, snug. Snug. I don't want to be snug. Let, you're more vulnerable when you're next to the sea. I want to, to be open sea. to the currents of the universe. Consequently, you spend a good part of your life in next Iceland looking out a window, listening to the birds. I've got an old poem that I, it's not old, it's relatively new, but if the sea wants to eat you, it will. The sea has no opinions. And if the tide decides to rise a little higher than usual and wipe you away, it will. There's something nice about that. And you can't hold it against it. You can't say, the tide has got it in for me. The tide doesn't care in the least about you. The tsunami doesn't care about you. Uh, It's not God's plan. It's just tide decided it was hungry. (laughs) I'm speaking with Bill Holm. Bill's written a book called Eccentric Islands that gives us uh, food for thought about islands both geographic and as a frame of mind. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our next stop is at the intersection of two continents. Our perennial tour guide friends from Istanbul, Tan and Lali Aran, join us for a look at some of the lesser-known attractions of their great city. We'll do as the locals do in Istanbul as we wander off the main tourist routes. And we'll get to know the famous landmarks like the Grand Bazaar and the Galata Bridge from a Turkish perspective. And we'll take your calls, too, at 877-333-7425. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Mehlika Seval, Mele from Turkey. Now I'll give you a tongue twister in Turkish. Bir berber, bir berbere, bire berber, gel beraber, berberistanda berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Which means, one barber to another barber said, come barber, 
Let's open up a barber shop in Berberistan together. Bir berber bir berbere bira berber gel beraber Berberistan'da berber dükkanı açalım demiş. Wow. <gülüyor> That was good. Istanbul is one of the rising stars of travel destinations in Europe. And, uh, you know, we've done the Blue Mosque and Hagia Sophia and Topkapi Palace, but there's so much more to this thriving city of 10 million people. Today, we're looking at Istanbul offbeat. Istanbul, the back streets. Istanbul, secondary sites that really might give you more of that pizzazz and that carbonated experience of really knowing Turkey. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And I'm joined by two of my favorite Turkish tour guides, Tan Aran and Lali Sermon Aran. They uh, join us in our studios today to talk about getting off the beaten track in their hometown, Istanbul. Tan and Lali, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. It's great being here. It's great to be here. Thanks, Tan. Now, Istanbul, 10 million people. Or more. Or more. Probably hard to count. Very hard to count. It's like 15 million. 15 million. And most of the tourists probably go to 3%, the old area just around the the Topkapi Palace and and the Blue Mosque. But Getting out is probably critical to really understand today's Istanbul. Now, tell me about just the general change in the last decade. You've got a progressive mayor, more green zones, uh, a better transit. What's happening in Istanbul? Um, Istanbul, when I was a kid, was only half a million people. Uh, That was 30 years ago. And it's like uh, 30-fold right now. And we got 50 million people from all around the country, um, from the Balkans, from the Caucasus. They just ended up in Istanbul. And 15 we, million. 15 million people. When I was a kid, that was only half a million. Uh, I don't remember locking our doors. I remember going into uh, my neighbor's house and going into the kitchen, get some milk, and <laughs> walk out. And, you know, that was the kind of living we had in Istanbul. Lolly, how are the changes? Is the governor good or the mayor? What kind of work are they doing? Well, are we can always discuss about how the politicians are doing. But, of course, what I can say is that in the recent years, the best progress I have seen is the development in the local transit system. The number of ferries increasing, so the transportation between two continents become easier. As you know, Istanbul is spread over two continents. So you've got the old city in the European side, but just over the Bosporus is the Asian district of Istanbul. Exactly. And is that a lot of people on that side? Plenty. We're estimating that 60% of the residents live in European side and 40% live in the Asian side. So five or six million people probably on the Asian side and coming over by ferry to go to work and so on. Yes, the ferry makes it easier. The number of ferries increasing makes it easier for us. And also, at the moment, they're building a tunnel underneath the Bosphorus for public transportation, and we're hoping that it will be in service soon. It's an amazing project. They call it one of the wonders of the new century. And this is an example of how Istanbul is looking ahead and and really emerging as as an economic giant. Mm -hmm. And you already have this... uh, Intercontinental suspension bridge looks much like Two of the, them. Gold, the Golden Gate Bridge. And then yes. you have a more modern one yet, yeah. Now, my memory of Istanbul is uh, visiting Istanbul back when you were a kid, even, Todd. And, uh, <laughs> I was in my short pants. You were in your short <laughs> pants. I think, I think you sold me some... Uh, some uh, uh, carpets, sir? <laughs> <laughs> carpet, sir. No, uh, the little boys were selling Vishnu, right? Uh, cherry juice. Vishna. In these, Vishna. In these beautiful little bottles. They were running around in the streets selling the tourists all the little cherry juices and the little boys would be hanging out the dormush, yelling, Sirkeji, Sirkeji, Sirkeji. Yeah, that's nostalgia. Yeah. It's gone a long that, time that, ago. To me, when I get to Istanbul, there is that nostalgia. Tell, tell us about the old dolmush, Tan. Well, dolmush was... Uh, First of, of all, what does it mean? Yeah, dolmush means stuffed. Stuffed in, okay. Um, that, that was like a van, shared van, and uh, that had a set route, and you could get in and out along its route, and that was very inexpensive. So people loved it. You know, that was casual way of uh, getting one from one place to the other place. But uh, it's gone. That's that's a thing of the past right nowadays with all this development of, uh, you know, public transport system. So think of Istanbul a couple of decades ago. I was doing ago. that when I was a kid. I yeah. used to play this. Did play you? Dolmish. Yeah. I would uh, put the I chairs one after the other and I would just shout, you know, <laughs> tax him, tax him. And tax him, tax him. Aksari, Aksari. Yeah, I, I was, you know, <laughs> when we were kids, we were playing those games. Top copy, top copy. I just still remember it because it was sort of the festival of life that was Istanbul. So people understand, instead of sort of buses or taxis, this is a hybrid and you've got a minibus stuffed with people. That's why they call it Domush and little boys hanging out the, the passenger door yelling where they're going. And if it was going vaguely in the direction you were going, you'd hop in, give them a couple pennies and you'd jump yeah. out where you wanted Ask to. Ask the driver where it, to get off and that was great. Now, a different scene would be the cruise ships coming into town. What, what do you got? Every morning you look out and you see a couple of giant white cruise ships docked in Istanbul. How many cruise uh, visitors could happen in one day, Lolly? 
plenty. Over the past summer, I remember days that I counted eight or nine cruise ships at the dock in one morning, and each of these cruise ships take about a thousand or two thousand people. So you that could makes have a lot of people. Ten, twenty thousand tourists coming out, uh, all the young guides meeting them with their ping pong paddle with a number on it. Exactly, Follow me. exactly. And as a guide, what I do is that we live in the Asian coastline of, of Istanbul, Asian shore of Istanbul. So I take the morning ferry to Europe, to the old town. And on the morning ferry, I just look at the cruise port and count the number of the cruise ships there. And then I reorganize the day schedule for my groups. So you you might be meeting a family or something because you're more of a private guide. Yes. Or, and then you would look at this and say, oh, today it's going to be 20,000 tourists at so the Blue Mosque. So I won't go to the Blue Mosque in the morning, but in the afternoon, the cruise ships more or less have a pattern about where they take their people. And I know it by heart. And I count the number of ships, estimate the passengers out of each ship can be, and then reorganize the sightseeing for the day. Well, that's a good guide to be able to do that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by two Turkish friends and tour guides, Tan Aran and Lali Sermon Aran. Tan, when I'm in Istanbul, I've spent most of my adult life marveling at great church architecture in Europe. I go to Istanbul, and the equivalent, of course, is great mosque architecture. Mm-hmm. And you go to the, everybody goes to the Top Copy Palace, that's dazzling, and uh, you go to the Hagia Sophia, which was built as a church back in the 7th century or something. It was the greatest church, right? And then it became a mosque, and today it's a museum with the remnants of all of that. But if you really want to get stunning mosque architecture, how do you appreciate that in Istanbul? But that's classical Ottoman architecture, modeled after Hagia Sophia, basically. Going to Hagia Sophia, you'll learn 80% of uh, modern Ottoman architecture. In fact, even today, in the 21st century, very many of the mosques with a central dome and a side aisle in the new parts of town are modeled after this. So if I get that straight, the Ottomans were the Muslim power that left their architectural imprint on the great city of Istanbul. Captured Istanbul in the 15th century and uh, modeled their mosque, their, their architecture, um, after they've seen after Byzantine churches exactly so the Byzantine church Hagia Sophia was a model to, was a model for today's standard mosque design exactly and in the interesting case of Hagia Sophia it was built as a church so the niche the prayer niche faces Jerusalem and then they couldn't move the whole building but when it became a mosque they shifted the prayer niche or the mirab a little bit to the right because Mecca is not quite the same direction from there as Southeast Jerusalem. So they had to do a little pr- uh, practical shift there. But, of course, any purpose-built mosque would be facing Mecca. Is that right? Mecca. From all around the world, it's always Mecca. Mosques face Mecca. Uh, the, the prayer niche. The prayer niche does, yeah. Now, when I stepped into the Suleiman the Magnificent Mosque... I'm was not, it, wasn't that gorgeous? I was... I, and, and I didn't It's not even, like the Blue Mosque. Blue no, Mosque is over-decorated. Blue and, Mosque uh, is like stamped out. It's kitschy almost compared to... But well, this one is... Uh, classic. Tranquil. Exactly. Tranquil. 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 What that's is it about right that? The Suleiman, that's the greatest mosque and the tourists don't go there, but it's really alive with uh, worshippers and so yes, on. Yes, it is. And if I need to name a great mosque in Istanbul, Mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent would be number one without a doubt. What is it about the architecture that's so classic? Uh, uh, Tan said it's, it's not over-decorated. Is that part of it? It's the architect that built it, basically. It was built by an architect named Sinan. And he was the royal architect to Suleiman the Magnificent, plus two other sultans after him. Sinan, the architect Sinan, was the man who started the classical Ottoman religious architecture. Okay, so Suleiman's mosque, with the work of Sinan, like the work of Bernini. Set the pattern. Set the pattern. So he sort of uh, raised the bar, and that's what everybody tried to emulate. Exactly. He's like Michelangelo. He's like um, Bramante or some great European architect. And contemporary to those at the same time. Before Hmm. he built Mosque of Suleiman the Magnificent, Suleiman, the emperor, actually told Sinan, architect Sinan, to fix Hagia Sophia, which was in Hmm. in need of repair. Mm -hmm. So as Sinan fixed up Hagia Sophia, he examined the architecture there, then came up with the idea of using one big great dome over the mosques. A dome supported by domes, is that right? On the sides, exactly. Right, so you have that openness that you have in a great Mm -hmm. mosque. Mm -hmm. And and there's something about the rhythm or the peacefulness or the harmony of the lines there that even the student of uh, Western church architecture comes in, appreciates it. So when you go to those mosques... There's something really interesting about that. Uh, Very many of the classical Ottoman mosques are built on uh, four large piles to support the dome. Mm-hmm. Now, the piles in Suleiman's mosque, they don't, they're not visible. You go in there, they're like built in the walls. Oh, okay. uh, they're decorated such a way that... Enhancing uh, you know, the openness. They don't, they don't yes. interrupt the interior. 
So then your your focus is surface out there. Your focus is the niche. The niche. Your focus is the dome. dome. Right. And God. And God, of course. Now, another highlight for people when they go to Istanbul is the Grand Bazaar. And the Grand Bazaar, it's it's like a huge medieval shopping mall. The tourists all go right down the main drag, and there's lots of gold and glitter and lots of carpet salesmen and and high-pressured touristy stuff. But you can get off the main street street. and go to the side streets and then see a new whole world there. What do you find? What are some dimensions that the tourists often miss? Just imagine, Rick, it's such a big area. And on the main streets, you only see the sellers of the goods that are made in the back streets of the Grand Bazaar. So if you just make your way to the back streets of the Grand Bazaar, tiny alleys of the Grand Bazaar, then you get to see the craftsmen, the artisans. See the poor man's stock market. There's a stock market. It's not an official stock market, but it's been going on for ages where the international currencies are exchanged, where precious metals are exchanged, and it's still going and on. And these are young wheeler dealers with their cell phones just Yes, exactly. Just you would see them in the in the alleyway. You would see them in their dark suits. And it's just amazing. But if you just stay in the main road, you don't get to see any of it. And on the other hand, you feel frustrated being on the main street. So when you go to the Grand Bazaar, you can be with all the cruise ship masses following their guides down the main drag. Or you can venture into the far reaches. You can see people melting gold and silver scrap. You can see the poor man's Wall Street. You can sit down and have your shoes shined with a man that you'll never forget. And he'll never forget you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Tan and Lolly from Turkey. Uh, our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Sherry's on the phone in Kelso, Washington. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for your call. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I have friends that have traveled. I hope to go to Istanbul and the marketplaces are one of the highlights of my travels. How can I um, maneuver and navigate what sounds to be very aggressive carpet salesmen and not be offensive. It's not, I don't plan on purchasing a carpet, but how can I be polite but, um, you know, not get pulled into trying to buy something I don't want? Good question. Well, they don't take no for an answer. So uh, <laughs> I've heard. avoid eye contact and uh, keep walking. Do they have? Okay. Do you have to be? Do you have to be sensitive about hurting their feelings? I oh, no, you don't have to be sensitive about that. Because if, these if guys are sensitive. They're stealing your time. That's a, that's another story. They're taking so, your time. They're so. taking your time. You, you're taking their time. Uh, so don't worry about that. You you just be yourself. Okay. You just uh, don't have to be nice about those kind of things. You just walk away. They're experts at pulling on your heartstrings and making them. You they're, feel they're, sorry. They're playing for them. emotional. They know that uh, Americans are emotional in that sense. You know, they, you're trying to be nice to them. They know it. They use it. <laughs> wow. All right, thank you. You know, uh, Sherry, one thing I do is I just like to joke with them. You know, they'll, they'll say, uh, they'll give you some goofy line. Can no, I? You s- can play. You can play their game. You, you play know, their game. A, I love their lines. Make fun of that and uh, just walk away. The latest line over there I found was, uh, "Can I sell you something you don't need?" <laughs> They're telling <laughs> well, me. Well, on the other hand, my son had tea with a, a shop owner once and said it was one of the highlights of his trip. He wasn't going to buy uh, carpet. He was a poor college student at the time, but he really enjoyed his time there. I think that's good advice. Let him let him wine and dine you. There's no strings attached. But if you do not have time, you might want to try not getting into a conversation with them because it's part of their sales gimmick, that making friends with you to start with and then move on to a sales business afterwards. They're fun people. They're smart people. Can you imagine a person that can sell you a carpet in 15 different languages? That should be a smart person. And uh, if you have time and if you can make it very clear that you have time for a conversation but not the budget for a carpet, and if they're still interested in conversating with you, as your son had, you might have a great time. But otherwise, if your time is limited, just keep walking and avoid an eye, eye contact. Okay, thank you very much. Have fun in the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. She will. Great. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're venturing into the far reaches of the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. Esther's on the phone in Chicago. Hi, Esther. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. You got a comment or a question for Tom or Lolly? Actually, I was just going to give a comment that one of the things I love about Istanbul is that in the Grand Bazaar, you can have anything fixed. Um, I've taken jewelry that needed to be resized, you know, gold and silver jewelry. Sometimes a little stone falls out. They can find a replacement. And the best part is the workmanship is exquisite. It's really good. And the price is just really a little above 
the gold or silver value. Um, I think it's some, something people don't think of, you know, to take your repairs to Istanbul. So I'm not, I don't know much about this, but so let me understand. You've got a broken piece of jewelry, and uh, you bring it over to Istanbul, and you leave it overnight with a, uh, one of these uh, artisans. The Generally, what I, my experience has been, um, you know, there's an area of the Grand Bazaar where the artisans are, the gold uh-huh. jewelry makers, yeah. and um, they look at it, they quote you a price, and they generally say, this is very hard to believe, but they say, come back in half an hour. So you go, you hmm. look at the rest of the bazaar, you come back. I'm not so sure I would want to leave something overnight, okay. mostly because as a tourist you're very busy and it might be hard to get back. Yeah. The salesman wouldn't, or, or the artisans wouldn't want to keep your item over the night as well. They would want to fix it right away and get rid of it right away. Oh, and that's, that's, the, that's the fashion. I also do the same thing very frequently. If I have something in need of a repair, I take it to the Grand Bazaar. They tell me the same thing. I leave it for half an hour, and half an hour later when I'm back, it's as good as the first day I bought it. You know, that's a great tip, Esther. I May think. I take it from here? Because yeah. uh, she's describing the real Grand Bazaar. Yeah. About 30 years ago, this would be the Grand Bazaar. You know, you would go in not just for shopping, but fixing things. Uh, but nowadays, everything is overpriced, and, uh, you know, big shop owners actually took over the main streets. and uh, The high-rent area. High-rent area. But uh, go to the back, and, the and far reaches. And push those people yeah. to the far reaches outside the Grand Bazaar at the same time. You know, you have to detour the Grand Bazaar in order to find those kind of places. Even outside the Grand Bazaar proper, huh? It's all outside the Grand Bazaar right now. But Good this point. would be the Grand Bazaar 30 years ago. Good point. Thank you, Esther, for your call. And uh, next time I have some jewelry that needs repaired, I'm going to Istanbul. <laughs> Wonderful. Bye-bye, Rick. Good okay, luck bye. to you. Rick, I have something very special. I want to share it with you. Here, this is a date. It came from the city of Medina in Saudi Arabia, and it's from the tree that was planted by Prophet Muhammad in the 7th century AD. They kept the tree going on all the time. Wow, this date. Yes, it is. Is from the tree that... Yes. Prophet Muhammad planned it. Yes. And, and what you're holding in your fingers at the moment, you can't believe how precious it is to a Muslim. This is what you would break your fast with, having a date. Is that right? People would use a regular date, mm. but this date is... This is a special date. It's a very, very special date. Just imagine eating off the tree that Jesus planted. Oh, it tastes divine. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Thank you. How do you say thank you? I forgot. Teşekkür ederim. Teşekkür. Mmm. No, very be- very delicious. How do you say delicious? <laughs> Nifis. Nifis. Okay. The what date did you from- do with the seed? I ate it. Okay. It's going to grow within me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the truth. <laughs> That's good. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our phone number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. My friends Tan and Lolly Aran are our guests today as we explore their hometown of Istanbul on Travel with Rick Steves. We're taking yet another look at the always beguiling city of Istanbul with hometown tour guides Tan and Lolly Aran. They operate a tour agency called SRM Travel. This time, we're looking at Workaday Istanbul off the beaten track. We'll get better acquainted with the city that was the leading city in Christendom for centuries and remains a cultural powerhouse to this day. We're talking about Istanbul. We're not talking the Blue Mosque and Hagia Sophia and the Top Copy Palace. We're getting off the beaten path. You know, when you walk around Istanbul, a lot of the tourists are, are stuck in the you know classic Pioneer Square kind of of the city, the birthplace. But I think it's important to get into the modern town and really, the Grand Boulevard is Istiklal Kadasi. Is that right? Istiklal Jadesi. Say it again. Istiklal Jadesi. Istiklal Jadesi. Jadesi. Jadesi means boulevard or something. Uh, Jadesi is street. Street. Okay. Okay. And the this, C is a, is a J. In so our this goes from Taksim Square, which is sort of the Times Square of modern Istanbul, in a lot of transportation ways. hub, transport city. And then you just walk. And you know, the last couple of times I've been in Istanbul, it is a virtual human traffic jam that's about a mile long. It's a flood people. of people thriving with people. This is where you really get a look at the ethnicity of Turkey, the trends, the the young crazy people, all all the fun stuff that's going on. Lolly, if you're walking down Istiklal 
Street. Istiklal Jaddisi. Thank you. Uh, what would you look for as a tour guide? Take me on a tour. Who am I going to see? What's what's going on with the trends and the ethnicity? Well, first of all, I tell the travelers that come with me, when they're on Istiklal Jaddisi, forget about the history of Istanbul. Concentrate on today's Istanbul. Look at the shops. Look at what people buy. Look at what people consume. Look at what they do in their own time. You would see lots of cafes lining the Istiklal Jaddisi. You will see lots of bookshops, music shops, theaters, art galleries. That's a great chance to see the living Istanbul. Old Town is great. Sights of Old Town are spectacular. But if you are only stuck in the Old Town, it does it means that you're not getting knowing Istanbul. You're just getting to know the historical Istanbul, but not the contemporary Istanbul. In fact, last time I was there with you, you took me into a silk shop. Wonderful man. And you said this is the best silk in Istanbul. Yes, it was. And a classy shop. And he had very good attendance, salespeople. And the young woman was happy to demonstrate the different ways a woman would wear a scarf. There are several different ways that women prefer wearing their scarves, if they wear scarves. And the more conservative kind of cover more skin and more of the hair, while younger and trendier prefer covering less of it. So there are different shapes of scarves and different sizes as well with different designs. Younger kind of go for more bright colors and geometrical patterns in their scarves, while older and more conservative prefer traditional patterns, seeing traditional patterns on their scarves, like the patterns you would see on the Turkish tiles. Oh, Turkish tile patterns. Okay. So um, it can be a fashion statement, and it can be a statement of your conservativeness, your, your, your orthodoxy with the religion? Yes, both. So a, a young woman who's not very um, open about how she's practicing her faith would wear it as a stylish accessory. Somebody else who wants to let people know they are a devout Muslim Mm-hmm. How would they wear the scarf? Uh, they would put it all around their face and cover their neck as well. Because we had the woman demonstrate, and she was doing all the stylish things, and then we asked her to do the fundamentalist Muslim wear, and she did a tight bend around the forehead and a tight strap under her chin, and it was like everybody got Frame the chills. Frame her face with a Frame. scarf. And then that was the fundamentalism that you see rising on the streets, which is an interesting issue in, in Turkey Right now, is there a shift in Turkey to the right and towards a violation of the separation of mosque and state? Is there a threat for that? Um, there, there is a trend. There, there is no. Well, I don't see that threat for separation mm-hmm. of mosque and the state, but there is a trend of being more religious, and um, it's it's a trend within the past decade. Is this emanating from Istanbul, or is Istanbul the modern? Uh, defense against that, and it's coming to you from more conservative countryside towns. You can't make a separation of it because Istanbul is a big city with so many people, about 15 million people. So whatever is happening in the country, Istanbul is the showcase for it. Okay. Now, I was impressed because I was just in Turkey and I was just in Iran. Iran is a theocracy. Turkey is a modern state with a with a constitutionally dictated separation of mosque and state. It's a secular nation, which happens to be 99% Muslim. And interesting to me, I found that there was a stronger faith, I felt, in Turkey because it was a grassroots thing not dictated by the government and a weaker faith in Iran where it was a theocracy and everybody was being told to pray in school and so on. Do, do you think that makes any sense? It does. And there are some researches done in Turkey also. And according to these researches, they say that although people look more Western, have more Western-style lifestyles in Turkey, they are more devout. Mm-hmm. And according to some of these researches, um, 60% of the Turkish people regularly do their prayers versus a much lower percentage in Iran. But in Turkey, they're not supposed to do it. They do it only if they want to. I felt so comfortable. You know, I'm a Christian, and I'm very curious about Muslim faith and so on. And some places it gives me the creeps when I see a theocracy, because I don't want a violation of separation of whatever, mosque, church, or synagogue and state. Other places, it just feels so organic. And when I'm in Turkey, we have modern, well-educated people. I suppose the kind of people Ataturk wanted who are going about their secular world with this devout Muslim faith. When you go to the Topkapi Palace, just this last visit, I didn't realize how important that was for Muslim pilgrims. There's a lot of relics of, of Muhammad there? Yes, there are. And tell me about this man who's memorizing the Quran. Uh, we call them Hafiz, H-A-F-I-Z. They go through a special education and memorize all the verses in the Quran, which are more than 6,000. 
and the tradition is that in the area where the sacred relics are kept in the Topkapı Palace, they Ehafız recites these verses of the Quran non-stop. So 24-7, there's a team of these exactly. guys who've memorized Since the, the Quran. Since the 16th century. Since the 16th... Yes. Right there, 500 years in the Topkapi Palace. Exactly. And a tourist can see this going on. Yes. Amazing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking off the beaten path in Istanbul with Tanaran and Lali Sermonaran. We've got an email from Jason in Jacksonville, Florida. Jason writes, Istanbul is one of the most incredible cities in the world, from the vast open space of the Hagia Sophia to the eerie beauty of the Basilica Cistern. It's awe-inspiring. My visit included a personal meeting with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch, Bartholomew, which was a highlight of my life. (laughs) I encourage any and all who visit who are able to uh, go to Istanbul to uh, check out this aspect of that great city. It's as uh, rewarding as a trip to London or Paris. So people can actually... Check out the Greek Orthodox. Yes, they can go. They can go into the church. Wonderful. We have Annette on the phone in Albany, Oregon. Hi, Annette. Hi. Thanks for your call. Do you have a comment about uh, Istanbul? Well, there's just a couple of places I would mention. I was there in 2004 and had a wonderful time just for a few days, but I would encourage anyone who's interested in ancient history to stop at the Archaeological Museum. It's actually a series of several museums. Uh, my favorite, of, uh, because my interest is ancient history, was the Museum of the Ancient Orient. They had just some amazing pieces from Babylon and uh, a copy of the, one of the Hittite Egyptian, the Treaty of Kadesh. Hmm. It was just uh, an incredible place that I'd recommend anyone to visit. So I also uh, stopped at a couple of religious sites that weren't on the normal tour guide. One of them was the Church of St. Savior in Hora. And uh, it had the most incredible mosaics and frescoes that had been uh, updated, I think, in the 1300s, uh, something beautiful that I think people would enjoy. And there's also a very small uh, Greek Orthodox patriarchate, which isn't what you expect in Turkey, but um, it's a place to go. There's a, if the, it's hard to describe. I just guess I could say I've never seen so much gold in one place in my life. Uh, these are fun aspects of Istanbul that a lot of people miss, Annette. Uh, so people can understand Chora, C-H-O-R-A. That is the most magnificent uh, look at early Christian art in Istanbul, in a great church. And uh, the museum, you said, was the National Museum of Archaeology, is that Archaeological right? Museum of and Istanbul. Where's that located? It's in the grounds of the Topkapi Palace in the old town. Okay, so you you visit that as you visit the Topkapi Palace. And then this whole idea of the Greek patriarch, the Greek Orthodox Pope, basically resides in Istanbul. Tan, why is that? Yeah, that's, a, that's a historical thing. Uh, that area used to be the residential area of the minorities in the past. Uh, Non-Muslim uh, residents of the Ottoman Empire. For 400 years, uh, they lived there, including Greeks and the Jews. And later on in the 18th, 19th centuries, those people moved in large communities to uh, the new district area, which is Istiklal, Jadesi, we've right. been talking about. But for 400 years, they lived there. They built their churches. They built their uh, sanctuaries. And that part of town, which is in the old town today, grew as a non-Muslim community. And, uh, you know, from all around the world, Greek Orthodox actually were attached to this particular community there. It's confusing to me why you've got, Annette was just mentioning, the Greek Orthodox patriarch, the Pope of the Greek Orthodox Church, living not in Athens, but in Istanbul. What's the historic Istanbul was Constantinople, Rick. Yeah. The Turkish Ottoman Turks conquered Constantinople in the mid-15th century, from the Byzantines, and that ended the Byzantine Empire. So the Byzantine Christian religion that survives today is Greek Orthodox. Exactly, it is. And uh, historically, the capital of that culture was Constantinople. Which is Istanbul today. Before the Muslim Ottomans came and made it Istanbul. Yes. Ah, I get it now. Hey, we have on the phone Meg in Portland, Oregon. Meg, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I'm a professional musician and music teacher here in Portland. I play the saxophone and clarinet. And uh, I'll be touring Turkey in a few months from now, and I'm curious about connecting with Turkish musicians, uh, attending some performances, and trying out, actually playing some Turkish instruments. Whoa, that would be... What, what's a Turkish instrument you'd like to play? Well, I've been doing some research on the Internet, and I see that since I'm a wind player, I look at the wind instruments. There's a zurna, a kaval, chigurtma, Anyhow, and there's others. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing them correctly. Do you guys have any advice for for Meg? Well, there are um, schools that would provide short-term classes for visitors on Turkish instruments, but when I say short-term, they're not for an hour or for a day. Still, they are for about 
couple of weeks. But if a person is interested in this, yes, there are specific places they can go and learn playing some of the Turkish instruments and connect to the musicians. Meg, good for you. I, I hope that you can... I, that's such an unusual sort of uh, interest. I, I just think it'd be really interesting to check that out. Good luck on your travels. Thank you, Rick. Uh, I, I do it here whenever I'm traveling. I, yeah. So that's why I'm hoping I'll be able to try something like that. I do that in the great piano stores of Europe. When you go to Vienna, you can play the Bersendorfer. In Vienna, they have a music museum where you can actually play the clavichords and the harpsichords and, uh, and actually get a sense for that. And it would oh. be wonderful if there was a way to do that in Istanbul. Um, perhaps you can do some research on that. They can try a website, which is like a seller to most of the performance in Istanbul. It's not only for Turkish music, yeah. but it contains Turkish music. And that would be www.billetix.com. Billetix, so ticket dot sales. Ticketsales.com. Would it work in English? Yes, they have got two versions. Billetix.com, okay. Good luck, yes. Meg. Thanks Sounds for wonderful. your call. Thank you, Rick. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying Istanbul through the back door off the beaten path with Tanaran and Lali Sermonaran. Their website is srmtravel.com. I want to finish with a couple of experiences. Tell me about uh, a nargile. This is the big hubbly-bubbly pipe that uh, people suck on in the tea shops, right? Tan, is this something that is uh, touristy or traditional? It's more touristy so than nowadays, traditional. Because uh, the nowadays it's becoming more uh, fashionable because people uh, believe that it's a trend right now. Um, I don't think so, you know. Um, so it's touristy, and young Turkish people are picking up on it because they it's think it's fashionable. It's a social flank nowadays. Because I've, I've seen clubs filled with Turks. But that's not real tobacco. You know, in the past, back in the 19, 18th centuries, that would be tobacco. Oh, what is it now? The hard-hitting stuff. Nowadays, it's, it's fruit-scented tobacco substitute. Okay, so it's dried um, fruit. Yeah, it's, it sounds like that. Okay. And I never tasted that. I, I don't know the taste. Sometimes, if I'm not very busy, I would travel as far as Eyüp from our yeah. condominium. Yeah. You've seen where it is. Yeah. From there, I go to Eyüp to buy a certain kind of cookies. Is that right? The almond cookies. Ha! What are they called? Acıbadem uh, kurabiyesi. What does that mean? Almond cookies. Almond cookies. Say it again. Acıbadem yes. kurabiyesi. Badam. Badam Ajibad. means almonds, doesn't yes. it? Mm-hmm. Badam. Mm-hmm. Ajibadam is because uh, bitter almonds. I remember a girl in eastern Turkey meeting me when I stepped off the bus, and she held out a bunch of almonds, and she said, Badam. And you thought she was saying, buy them? I thought she was saying, buy them, <laughs> and I thought it was rude of her. And she was saying, almonds, have some. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a uh, language barrier problem. Badam. Mm-hmm. And it's really delicious. Have some almonds, she said politely. And uh-huh. I looked at her like she was trying to sell me something. Talking about language barrier, one of the hosts of one of the pensions, our group stay, his name is Fuat. And one day, one tour member walked up to him and asked his name, and he said, Fuat. <laughs> what? They said, and what's your name? She, yes, and she thought he was saying, what? <laughs> and then she said, what? What's your name? And Fuat said, Fuat. <laughs> and finally, tour member came up to me saying that I'm asking his name. He keeps telling me what. <laughs> That's his name. It's like, who's on first? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What? Uh, Tan, what do you think of this kokoretch? Yummy. <laughs> kokoretch, that's, I was just... Uh, that's one of my favorites. D- it's uh, sort of like... Food. It, what is it's it? Sheep, street food. Sheep innards? Sheep intestines. Yeah, chopped and served with um, tomatoes, so it's like green a, peppers, and In Scotland, spices. they have haggis. Uh, similar. 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 It's an acquired taste. Do you uh, get good... It's all fat, high cholesterol. How do you find a good fat. place? <laughs> How do you find a good kokoretch place? Um, you just have to experience that. Uh, there are not very many places I would eat that. I'm very, uh, very picky when it comes to kokoretch, but uh, there is quite a few places out there. Now, Turks must like it because I heard that some Turks would refuse entry to the European Union if the European Union didn't let them serve their kokoretch. That was a big rumor. Yeah. Uh, it would, people on the streets were saying, they were writing about that. You know, uh, There was this rumor that uh, kokoretch was going to be banned because of the health code in so Europe. So is there some health code issue with kokoretch? No, there's nothing like that. It was just, okay. uh, you know, it came up, popped up one day, <laughs> and uh, everybody was out on the streets. We don't want to give up our kokoretch. We just it don't was wanna... a public uprising who cares almost. About, who cares about Europe when there's kokoretch out there? Kokoretch or Europe. Well, there's one more experience. We've talked to a lot of different experiences. <laughs> you know, Ton and Lolly, when I'm in Istanbul, I've been going there all of my adult life, the Galata Bridge was just the crusty old romantic bridge going across the Golden Horn, connecting historic and modern Istanbul. And it was where people would come and 
fish and play backgammon and enjoy a cup of tea and, and have a romantic uh, rendezvous or whatever. And then they took the old rusted bridge away and they put a new modern bridge in its place. And the culture has engulfed the modern bridge and the enduring soul of Istanbul carries on. Is that? Am I too romantic about that, or do you feel like there's a strength of Istanbul that's stronger than one old bridge? We can change anything. We can band iron. So the culture we're, of Istanbul, the, <laughs> the culture of Istanbul survives. We can, we can do that. I am so impressed by that. Hey, we've been. You're not, you're not romantic about that. It's, it's the way it is. Tan and Lolly, give me one image. If you had a friend that you were coming to visit you from America, and you wanted them to enjoy something a little special. Let's finish off with just one little slice of Istanbul that you would share. Um, Tan, you first. Where would you take a friend? To the Bosphorus. To the, the big straits between. Beating, that's the beating heart of Istanbul, the Bosphorus. If you have a vacation day, you know, that's, where, that's the place to go. If you have friends, you want know, to get together, the Bosphorus. So that's like going out to the seashore. You know, getting, getting a sandwich and getting a can of Coke or, or a cup of tea and uh, sitting by the shore and uh, watching the ships pass by will make a whole day. Incredible know, so. ship traffic. I got you there. Lolly. If this friend that's going to come with me has seen highlights of Istanbul previously, I would take her on a ferry ride out of the old town to the biggest of the princess islands off the shore of Istanbul. People, when they're on the shores of Istanbul, see these islands, but not even a handful goes there. They're so beautiful. There is no motor vehicle traffic there. Mm. It's horse-drawn carriages or bicycles, beautiful old Ottoman homes, mansions there, built out of wood, forested, great seafood restaurants, and it's a great place to have a day like a vacation in, when you're in Istanbul. So a romantic Istanbul time warp. Go out to Princess Islands. Yes, it is. Tan Aran, Lali Sermon Aran, thank you so much for sharing a little look at your wonderful and powerful emerging city, Istanbul. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Listen again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Turkey, Greece, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next Greek or Turkish adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.